Take your Bibles, go to Matthew, the book of Matthew, chapter 5. While you're turning there, I'll tell you the story of Robert Robinson. Most of us don't know his name, but many of us are familiar with some of his work. He was saved under the preaching ministry of George Whitfield in England many years ago. And he was saved out of a very rough background. And um, coming out of that background at the ripe old age of 23, having experienced the saving power of Jesus Christ in his life, Robert Robinson wrote one of the famous hymns that we sing even to this day, entitled, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. It has a line in there that talks about streams of mercy never ceasing. And yet for Robert Robinson, it seemed like those streams of mercy dried up. Not long after he wrote that now famous hymn that just expanded on and celebrated the grace of God and the mercy of God in his life, Robert Robinson found himself slowly slipping away from Christ's influence in his life. Most of us understand that some. We all seem to go through those up and down cycles and in our own spiritual lives there are times that we feel closer to God than at others and that's kind of what he was going through but over a period of time he got further and further away from that part of his life that was so vibrant when he wrote that hymn. Many years later he says that he found himself coming out of a life of debauchery, really. Crawled into a stagecoach. There was already a lady in that stagecoach, and as they were making their way across the landscape of England, he noticed that the lady was reading something quietly to herself, and his life was such that he didn't really have much to do with a person that, uh, at least the kind of person he thought she must be by the way she looked. And So as he sat there minding his own business and she was reading, all of a sudden she interrupted his train of thinking and said, "Uh, I'm reading this verse and it is so vibrant. I'd like to read it to you and let you tell me what you think. And he said, okay. And so she read this line, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. When she read those words, he burst into tears, and he responded this way, Madam, I am the poor, unhappy man who wrote that very hymn many years ago. And I would give a thousand worlds if I could enjoy the feelings that I had then. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. He said, if only I could find those streams of mercy. With great wisdom, she said to him, those streams have not dried up. The mercies of God are new every day. And the same man that he had been years before, in the drop of a knee, he could be again. Mercy. One of the greatest realities in the Christian life. 
We find ourselves in this study of the Beatitudes as we start working our way into the Sermon on the Mount. We come to this beginning part, really the introduction to the, Beatitude, um, to the Sermon on the Mount at large, and it is so jam-packed with spiritual truth for us that now we've been in it, I guess this is our fifth week, uh, just looking at the Beatitudes, and with every step I find myself deeper and deeper in frustration. <laughs> Because I see what God has and what God, in in fact, in this case, Jesus just gives conditions of the Christian life. These are not even exhortations or challenges to us. Jesus is just simply saying, congratulations to you if you are this one, in this case, merciful. He's not saying you should be this way. He's saying the one who understands and is a Christ follower as I intend you to be, not just my child because I'm your Savior, but my child because I'm your Lord also. As I walk with you through life, these are the conditions that your life will mirror. And he started off on those first four that we looked at, and I won't take the time to go through all of them this morning, but he started off in those first four as they dealt with our interior life, our life with him, the vertical relationship. It starts off, blessed are the poor in spirit, spiritually bankrupt, understanding that there's nothing in and of myself that I can take to God to say, okay, now you have to listen to me. All of us in our right mind spiritually recognize that we bring nothing to the table in a relationship with God. But Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the entry point for us. The next step, once you understand that sin and you recognize just how spiritually bankrupt you are, the appropriate response is to grieve over that. So blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The comfort comes as knowing that it's not about my abilities, it's about his ability. And his drawing me to himself. So blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And then blessed are the meek, the ones who are tamed by God in this daily ongoing life. And then as we saw last week, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, have this craving for God and the things of God in our life. All of those together emphasize the first of the two great commandments. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. It is the vertical relationship pulled down into nice poetic language that challenges my socks off every day. But now with this next beatitude, the one we look at today, Jesus turns and he goes to the second of the two great commandments, love your neighbor as yourself. And here's what we begin to see now. As he has pulled us to himself with the first four, now he pushes our focus outward into how we deal with other people. I have to tell you, it's a very strong likelihood that you're going to get really uncomfortable before 12 o'clock hits today. Jesus does that to us. If we take his words beyond face value, in other words, if we don't just settle for the nice poetic language that the Beatitudes are, and we really start getting down and digging in them and letting them dig on us, it, it gets flat uncomfortable for me. And I suspect it will be for you also, or at least for your spouse. So get those sharp elbows ready, and let's see what we find here. Matthew chapter 5, now in verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, 
for they shall receive mercy. As you'll hear me say before we finish, I'll say it several times, literally we could translate the back half of that, for they shall be mercied. But before we get to that, let's look at the front side, the condition. Congratulations to you, the merciful ones. It's an interesting term. It's not one that first century Romans would have really liked too much. Because first century Roman society that stretched across the known world, of at least that part of the known world at that time, uh, paid a, uh, uh, they put a lot of emphasis on being strong and, and not weak. And they took mercy as being a sign of weakness. But Jesus turns that on its ear. His followers who were living in a Roman world also had a Hebrew mindset. And Jesus reaches back into the Old Testament and he pulls some terminology here that points them to the very character of God. If you take a chance, go back and read sometime Exodus 34 where God and Moses are dealing with and God gives a self-description. And one of the things that he says about himself is that I'm the compassionate one. And that involves this idea of mercy and loving kindness and, and expressions of that. So Jesus pulls from that and he takes these first century common, ordinary people of his day and he begins to infuse into them what it means to be a God follower of this one named Jesus Christ. Two different aspects of this term mercy as Jesus uses it here. One of them has the idea of kindness. To be merciful has this connotation of being kind to people. Particularly it means a selfless investment into another person strictly because they're needy. It really doesn't have anything to do whether they're worthy of that or not. It's just because you see them in their need and you invest yourself for their good. Let me give you an example of that maybe that will help you. Most of us know of years past now, and maybe it's long enough ago that some of us don't really know the whole story, but there was a televangelist named Jim Baker who uh, was super famous in church worlds. Unfortunately, he got super famous partially because of some criminal misdoing, and he went to prison and uh, had a, you know, it was interesting living through those times, watching the church as they dealt with one of their own, one of their superstars, the rock star of televangelism, who went and took the fall for some of his behaviors. The church turned on him largely, and in those years, and I think he spent like five years in prison, but as those years started to come to a close, one of the other rock stars in Christian world touched base with him, a guy by the name of Franklin Graham. You might know him as the son of Billy Graham. You also might know him as the one who helps us uh, do the Operation Christmas Child. Franklin Graham's organization is part of that. By the way, while I'm at that, let's just stop here and say, I hope that you'll be part of what we're doing as a church to help Operation Christmas Child. There are boxes available with instructions on what to do with that. The month of October, we're collecting those, and those will be sent to other places along with a gospel message to little children across the world who need something. It fits this idea of mercy, by the way. So Franklin Graham contacts Jim Baker in prison in those closing days of his term, and he says to him, when you get out, we're going to see, we being the Billy Graham family, we're going to see to it 
that you're taken care of? What are your plans? Well, he didn't have any plans. All the world had turned their back on him. He didn't have a place to live or a job or anything like that. So the Graham family said, we're going to supply you with a place to live. We're going to supply you with a vehicle for your transportation needs and also a job to help you get your feet on the ground. Jim Baker said to Franklin Graham, you don't really need to do that, you know. Um, I have been so isolated and rejected by the church. And you are of such stature in the church that your identification with me in that situation will tear you down. And Franklin Graham and his mother Ruth Graham said, it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. We're going to take care of you. That's mercy. That's this picture of kindness that says, I will invest myself in this person because they are needy. Not because they're worthy, simply because they're needy. The other use of this term that we find in the New Testament has the idea of forgiveness or of pardon. It is a compassionate sharing with somebody else uh, that moves to help them even though they have hurt you. Okay, now see, this is where people start going, oh man, I sure wish I hadn't come to church today. It is the forgiveness that is offered to somebody else simply because they need it, not because they've earned it. As a matter of fact, it has nothing to do with whether they even ask for it or not. This is mercy that says, I will reach across the void that you created between us to make things right because it's the right thing to do. Not because you deserve it, not because you said you're sorry, in spite of the fact that you won't say you're sorry, I will take this step. Mercy. It's not dependent on, it's, it does not depend on repentance, it does not depend on worthiness, it just is a gift, if you will. Case in point. Years ago, Napoleon, most of us know who he was, had a soldier in one of his units who had been guilty of the same infraction numerous times and he and his commanding officers decided that the only thing they could really do to deal with this soldier was put him to death. And so the word went out to that effect. His mother, this one of this soldier, showed up at Napoleon's headquarters, asked for an audience with him, went in and said, I am here to plead for mercy for my son. Napoleon went through the charges with her. He said, we have him on this and on this and on this. He does not deserve mercy. To which she replied, mercy, by definition, can't be deserved. (laughs) Now, only a mother talked to Napoleon that way, I suppose. But listen to the truth of that. I'll put it in my terms. If you deserve mercy then it's not mercy at all, it's merit. Make sense? Okay, now I want to make sure we're all together here before I take the next step. Mercy is not dependent at all on the other person. It is strictly a move from me into the void to you. Let's make sure that we distinguish between grace. That's another one of those church words I talked about last week. That's a great word. 
It's still a church word. We use it sometimes, don't think about it. Let's distinguish between grace and mercy. I like the way Tony Crisp defined this for me. I hope you'll get a chance to meet him at some point down the road. Maybe we can have him here to preach for us. But uh, in the meantime, let me just give you this little snippet of what he said. Grace is God giving you what you do not deserve. You know the best picture of grace? Hello? You know the... Jesus Christ is the best picture of grace. Salvation, to be exact. You do not deserve. Matter of fact, you cannot deserve. If you worked diligently for the rest of your life trying to earn favor with God, you would fall short, desperately short. Salvation is not earned. It is the gift of God. Grace says God reaches to us and he gives us that which we do not deserve. If you're here today, by the way, and your life doesn't seem to add up, and it seems to make no sense to you, and you're tired of running on the hamster wheel that we call life, let me tell you something. Jesus Christ will make your life incredibly fulfilled. But it's a grace thing. You don't earn it. You just accept it. Grace is God giving to us that which we do not deserve. Mercy is God not giving us that which we do deserve. You know what we deserve for our sin, for our rebellion? We deserve death. But grace reaches into that. Mercy says, you deserve this, but I'll give you this instead. Remember last week I mentioned my son, the fact that he was assaulted at school, and that went into the legal system, and uh, the district attorney's office picked up this case, and uh, a uh, second-degree felony assault charges against this boy that attacked my son. And, and uh, in the process of all of that, uh, I didn't finish the story, and some of you jumped my case this week because I didn't finish the story. Uh, he's alive. Did that finish it? Okay. Um, but there's a whole lot more to it, all right? And particularly, this is what I want you to get. Through a series of legal maneuvers that I particularly like to call failures. The district attorney's office totally botched the charges against this other kid. The point being, finally, I stood before the judge on behalf of my son, who was at that time a minor, and the judge asked me point blank, Mr. Rotrammel, what would you like me to do as judge to this boy who attacked your son? (laughs) So glad you asked. Let me tell you something a little bit about the Rotrammels. Um, all the votes are in, and you already called me as your pastor, so I'm going to tell you this, okay? <laughs> our, our perspective on life is, if you shoot me with a water gun, I'm going to run over you with my truck. <laughs> that communicate for most of you? Okay, A lot of you, I know, the same way. That's why, you, that's why we get along so well. Okay, so now I'm taking that part of me into this courtroom as formal and as power-packed a situation as I had ever been in in my life, where a judge has the right and the ability and, in fact, in a few moments is going to say, this is what will happen. And the full strength of the American legal system is behind what she says. And she's asking me, what would you like me to do? 
this boy attacked my son, nearly killed him. You want to take a guess of what I wanted her to do? I told her, I don't want to ruin the kid's life, but there has to be consequences. Our society has to have some kind of sense of awareness of consequences. When you attack somebody from behind and nearly kill them, you can't just walk away from that. Now, that's me. You know what I call that? Justice. Be careful when you start asking for justice. Typically, what we mean when we ask for justice is, I want justice for you. I want mercy for me. So that's the case. In a power-packed legal situation, that was what I responded. But I knew that standing next to me was my son. Who from the moment he regained consciousness at the hospital said to me in multiple ways, Dad, just let it go. Dad, don't push it. You know what that's called? It's called mercy. A refusal to reach across and enforce justice in that case. I have to tell you, I don't understand that. To this day, I look at that, and my son at that time... 14 years old, I suppose, preaching a tremendous message of mercy. To be congratulated are the mercy givers. What does that look like practically for us? Because under God, I hope none of you ever have a situation like we had to go through with Colin. But every one of us, every day, have to go through a situation where mercy is required. I've been your pastor for three months and a little over a week. I'm going to get real honest with you today. And if this offends you, (laughs) well, there's a verse of Scripture in Psalm 119 that says, Perfect peace have those who love your law and nothing shall offend them. But that hasn't stopped people from getting offended. As a a matter of fact, really offense is what I want to talk to you about. It's just an observation, okay? I've heard more people tied to this church, either currently or previously, in the three months that I've been here, I've heard more people per capita talk about being offended from this church than I've ever heard in any other church. Now, understand that. Walking through life is a dangerous proposition. You know why? Because there's people out there. And people are ruthless in the way they treat people. And so I understand a part of that, that sense of being hurt and being damaged by somebody else, 
But what I don't get, just frankly, okay, and I'm with all the love I can possibly give you, the only reason I'm even talking about this is because, first of all, I care about you. There's a better way to live than carrying around a bunch of hurt from the past. You don't have to do that. But people do that. Church people do that. And by the way, another reason I'm talking about this, if we're ever going to be the church that God calls us to be, we're going to have to get over some things. Because the people who are out there, they got real stuff to get over. So with that in mind, I hope that you'll hear me in love. But I'm not here today to make you feel good as you walk out. Okay, what I want to do is try to help you come to grips with some things. So if you're one of those who happens to think, well, you know, so-and-so really hurt me and uh, I'm not... Hear this. If you really boil it down to be offended and to hold on to being offended is really the same as refusing to be merciful. It's really a control thing. It is that sense, remember that one part of the definition of mercy in the New Testament context, to give pardon or to give forgiveness? Offense and being offended is essentially saying, I have been damaged by you and I will not forgive you for that. What that does to us when we pull that in and we take in an offense and we hold on to it, and then we nurture it and it becomes this fire inside of us, not the healthy biblical kind, but the kind that just eats at us from the inside out. That, I love the way one guy said it. That's like taking a poison pill and expecting the other person to die. It kills you from the inside and does nothing to them. Offense and being offended and holding on to being offended is, in a sen- uh, is essentially saying, I will not be merciful to you. Remember what I said about that pardon and that offense in the biblical context of mercy? The person doesn't have to ask for it. The person cannot deserve it. It is simply something that I give. So when you get hurt and you choose not to forgive the other person and you carry offense around, shame on you. Because Jesus said the Jesus way is full of mercy. I know some of us are out there going, Preacher, you just don't understand. Well, you're right. My son only got nearly beat to death. I don't quite understand some of that. My other son. Oh, he's a smart aleck, this one. (laughs) Brandon is his name. it's it's been a great experience for me watching my kids as their faith came alive. Not my faith or Teresa's faith, but their own faith. And it just, you know, it's like, wow, I like to sit back and watch them. I really like it because I don't have to watch them in my living room. I can watch them from a distance now. But uh, several years ago now, Brandon discovered the joy of reading Scripture. And he's, every time we'd get together, he'd tell me a little bit of something about what God was teaching him. Now, you remember what I said about road travel and the water gun thing? Screw me the water gun, I'm going to run over you with my truck. My son Brandon took this. He's got a master's degree in road travel ease on that stuff. Okay? He's, oh, he's something. And so he said one day, he was studying scripture, and I don't even remember the context of what he was studying, but he was talking about what God was teaching him about this kind of stuff. 
And he said, you know, Dad, I was thinking about these people and, you know, how God in his right mind would just wipe them off the face of the planet because of what they'd done to me. And he said, I was just finally just kind of complaining to God about how I was being treated. And he said, this is what God said to me. You're right, Brandon. That's so much worse than being crucified. And I, I, I did kind of like what you just did. What? He said, he said, let me put it this way to you, Dad. What God said to me was, you're complaining about somebody who's picking on you. And I went to the cross and died a horrific death. And I didn't deserve it. Yeah, somebody talking ugly about the color of shoes you're wearing, that's so much worse than being crucified. Do you see how trivial the stuff that we carry that hurts us really is in light of the cross? If there was ever a picture of mercy, it's the cross. Where God says to us of our sin, I'm not going to make you pay because my son paid the price for you. That comes home to me when I see this kid that attacked my son walking the streets and I know that I'm the one who attacked God's son and he gives me life. I don't get that. Our stuff gets so trivial Preacher, if you just knew what they did, let me tell you something, with all the love I could muster, I don't care what they did. Jesus Christ commands us to be mercy movers. You notice the promise attached to this? Well, before I get to the promise, let me make sure that I get us all on the same page here. If you're really listening to me, then by now you ought to be saying, Preacher, that's hard to do. (laughs) You're talking about being merciful to people that are ruthless and I'm supposed to forgive them? Yeah, that's hard to do. I would say to you, welcome back to the first beatitude. Poor in spirit. I can't do this. One of the the brilliant things. makes (laughs) This is a dumb statement. Talking about Jesus himself. uh, Isn't it brilliant the way Jesus put this together? (laughs) That's one of those, duh, he's God, hello. Uh, Isn't it brilliant the way he put it together? The entry point in all of this is, you can't do this by yourself. Blessed, to be congratulated, are the poor in spirit, the ones who recognize that you don't have it within you to do what he's calling you to do. So then he starts telling us what it looks like to live the life, and we go, I can't do that. Welcome back to the first beatitude. Look at the promise now that's attached. Blessed are the merciful... For they will be mercied, literally translated. Let me make sure that we don't get the wrong impression here. Because if we're not careful, we get the impression here that if I will mercy somebody else, then God's obligated to mercy me back. God's not obligated to do anything for you. Now, he obligates himself on some things, 
But be very careful when you start setting it up in our minds that, okay, if I'll live the way he's telling me to live, then he's going to have to do this for me. You know what that is? That's slipping right back into a works-based salvation. He owes it to me. God doesn't owe you anything. He gives you a lot. You know what that is? Grace. And he doesn't give you a lot that you deserve. You know what that is? Mercy. Thank you. Make sure we're all together. So what this is then, let me just help you understand, I think, the way this works. Envision, if you will, a valve in a water line. Okay? And so if you turn the valve off, what happens? The flow stops. All right? But if you open the valve, what happens? Water goes downstream. Right? Well, sort of. That is right. But the better picture is when you open the valve, water comes through. It doesn't just go downstream. There's got to be some coming in in order for it to go down. When you stop the valve, it just stops everything. But when you open the valve, it allows the water to come into the valve and push it further down. Does that make sense? That's the picture of this mercy thing. One of my professors said it this way, a merciful spirit is an outstretched hand by which one grasps God's mercy. When that hand is closed tightly into a fist, it gives nothing, but neither does it receive. You see the picture here? What Jesus is saying is that as we become mercy movers, we're the valve, then God uses us, and as His mercy flows into our lives, we'll recognize it a lot better, by the way, when we start doing this. As it flows into our lives, we just pass it right on to those people that are around us. Let me give you a little bit of homework. Today, now, start praying that God would expand your ability to see people who need mercy. Oh, it's easy to see the people who need justice. I had several of those instances this week. <laughs> I said, one guy said something to me, and I thought, if you knew who I was, you wouldn't be talking like that. Some of that street part of me nearly jumped right out. That's bad for a preacher. You know what God reminded me of? This guy needs mercy. I wanted to give him some justice, but he needed mercy. I'm told there's some people... A particular individual on the street, lives on the street in the city of Lumberton. A street person. That person needs some mercy. Our society says, well, get a job and get after it. You, know, you don't know the circumstances there. Mercy. Ask God to begin to enhance your ability to see the people who need mercy. Oh, and by the way, jump into the need. A mark of kingdom people is their willingness. That's not strong enough. A mark of kingdom people is their insistence on being mercy movers in this world. Churches are full of people who are beat up because of other people. But there's not nearly as many in the church who are beat up by other people as there are outside of the church. If we don't get it right inside, why in the world would somebody on the outside want to come in? 
We're to be mercy movers. So let me just ask you, who is it in your world that needs mercy? When mercy to you seems like way too high a price to apply, I you to remember the words of this song by Phillips, Craig, and Dean. Mercy came running like a prisoner set free, past all my failures to the point of my need. When the sin that I carried was all I could see and when I could not reach mercy, mercy came running to me. Let's pray. Not a single one of us in here is exempt from the need for mercy. You and me, mostly me, are capable of wicked stuff. And yet God says, I love you like crazy. And I will give you not what you deserve, but what you need. If you're here today, you know you need God's love in your life. It comes in the form of His Son, Jesus Christ, who will give you life and turn your life upside down for the good. But it requires that you reach out and accept the gift. Just a few moments after we pray, I'm going to invite you. If you don't know Jesus Christ, just make your way out and come forward. You don't have to come forward to do this. You can do it right there where you stand as best you know how. Say, God, I need you in my life. I don't understand all this, but as best I know how, I need this. But I invite you to come so we can talk about it and let you just nail it down. Accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you don't know him as your Savior, today could be the best day of all of your life. So I invite you to come in just a few moments. Many of us, maybe even most of us in this crowd today, have long since accepted Christ as our Savior, but we refuse to walk the Jesus way of life with things like mercy. Some of us here need it today. and You're so beaten down with your guilt of life, whatever it happens to be, wherever it's tied in. You can't, in your best imagination, believe that God would love you because of what you've done. To you, I'd say mercy comes running today. And the Holy God says, put your hand in mine and we'll walk through life together. Some of us need to be better at moving mercy big on justice and chopping people up but we're not big on loving God says to you today this needs to change so Father we come before you none of us with anything to offer except ourselves we ask you to do your best work in us your mercy for us.